Good morning, Maple Crest. It's good to see you here. I'm actually starting to get used to this a little bit here, being in the front at Park Theatre. Get used to the lights, and I feel like my eyes are adjusting, and I can actually pierce the darkness and actually see even to the back. So it's just good to start to get comfortable. I was feeling this morning already that uh, I felt the spirit more this morning, even on my drive in. I was just like feeling God, and there were some tricky things that happened, um, kind of getting set up for today, and and even with that, it was just like things were done, and I felt like I could focus more on the Lord. So it's just good to start to settle in and start to feel God here. And maybe it's different for you guys, like you know, just coming and being here. But for us, it's also just getting used to the to all the technical stuff, and so it's just good to be able to uh, do that without having to use my whole brain and like be able to feel God's presence in the morning as we prepare. Today I'm going to be talking about God's leadership and how, oh, how he raises grateful, humble children. And I know that some of your parents and some of your grandparents and some of you are looking forward to being parents and some of you are happy that you're not parents and some of you have been children, and I think I've covered everybody, right? I think everybody's now relevant here. Like, we, we want to know or have had people work for them or have mentored people or discipling. Like, how do you develop people under your leadership? How do you raise grateful, humble... Uh, how do you raise that spirit in the people around you? I don't know if you've run into people who are entitled... How many of you have run into somebody who is entitled in your life? Somebody who just feels like this should be done for them. Like they should uh, get whatever they want and it should be done for them without them requiring anything of them. It's just like, hey, I deserve this. I'm great. And don't get me wrong, I like confidence. Uh, we're often, I'm a psychologist, I'm often trying to help people develop their confidence. But I also have parents coming in who have entitled children. Um, and sometimes they come in when their children are young and there's behavioral problems. Uh, sometimes they come in when their children are older, um, like 30s or 40s, and they're still children. They're not adults yet. And they have various problems, and they, the parents have various problems as well. Um, and I see, I've had parents come in who are like my child. They're 40 years old now, and I still have to go and wake them up in the morning, like I have to call them, and the, I'm their alarm clock. Uh, I have parents coming in who, uh, you know, have children, and they still have to find their 40-year-old a job, like they're the ones talking to the manager to get them a job, they're the ones finding them homes, and these are perfectly capable, uh, perfectly capable 40-year-olds who have no developmental delay, um, and and it's expected, and, there, and there's disaster if it doesn't happen. And even when it does happen, it doesn't work. Uh, they don't keep their job. They don't wake up in the morning. And the money that comes out from parents to support children who have not yet become adults, um, just continual. And in, ch- in children, we call it spoiling a child. We call it uh, you know, children who have behavioral problems and attitude problems and temper tantrums and, you know, and that continue and, and don't dissipate at age-appropriate times. And in adults, we call it enabling. It changes language. And, and we talk about dependence uh, from children and uh, you know, drug addiction and other kinds of addiction, gambling and various things, um, and parents not being able to set the boundary. I have children um, who... 
uh, are so depressed that they're threatening themselves and parents who can't cope with that and have to do something and remain confined within the prison of their child's emotional stability and continually having to serve their child as a serve their, their adult child as a child uh, in order to prevent them from doing something that they would feel is unacceptable uh, for them, that they would feel too guilty for that to happen. Um, these children have not developed. And God is a father, and he doesn't want to raise entitled children. He, he has had, you know, angels. Satan was an angel under his authority and became entitled. He's not going to do it again. See, my, this is a personal, it's hard to prove this from the Bible. I believe that, and, and I don't really believe this in its full sense, uh, but I, I, I ponder this, maybe that's a better way to put it, I ponder this and how it's like, how would it be to have God be there and have Satan there, this person who's so close to him, who's like right in his fire with him, and have him fall away and betray him. To have somebody right there in your presence become that being that is against you. And, I mean, we think about Judas, and I'm sure you have experienced betrayal in your own lives and just how painful that is. And I feel like God has developed this world as a way to make sure that whoever he lets into his presence again will not betray him. I'm never going to let somebody in. I don't, he hasn't said this, so this is Cyrus talking. This is my own pondering. I'll just make sure that's qualified. Uh, so this is not biblical truth. But I can imagine God saying, I can feel the heart of God kind of saying, I'm never going to let somebody in my presence again, into my fire, who's going to betray me. So I'm going to create a system where I can test them, where I can know that they will love me even when they can't see me. That they will be humble. They will be grateful I'm only going to let people into my presence, into my holy fire, who are grateful, never entitled again. And here we are. Research on entitlement, research on spoiling your child suggests that if you reward your child for doing nothing, I don't think this is a one-time thing, this is a pattern. People who reward their children for doing nothing, which is, I think, actually the way we think about spoiling a child, It's actually borne out in research. When you reward your child for doing nothing, they become entitled. They expect that they're going to get something for nothing. It's like you're training them to do that. How do you train a child to expect something for nothing? You give them something for nothing. And then they learn that. Having no rules, never saying no, having too much freedom. Too much is a key word here. I believe in freedom. I believe in nurturance. I believe in... Um, caring, uh, soft, nurturing, parenting. Uh, But too much, something for nothing, creates an entitled child. And today I want to dive into Revelation, because last time we were talking about Revelation 4, and God's throne, and the beauty of God, and the beauty of his power, and the beauty of the people around him. And we are there, up there with him, and it's just almost impossible to imagine, but you try. This most beautiful place in existence we were talking about that out of Revelation 4 primarily. And I didn't get to Revelation 5, which is kind of continuing it. And in Revelation 5, there is this picture, which is just amazing. Revelation 5, 8. And when he had taken out the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. This is in the throne. 
each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So before the throne are these bowls filled with incense, which is the, our prayers. If you turn, if you have your Bibles, turn to Revelation 8, 1 to 6. It's, a, it's the same picture, but it's just more complete. So I'm kind of still talking about the throne room, but I'm skipping to Revelation 8 because it's got this more in-depth, detailed picture of these bowls. Revelation 8, 1 to 6. I'll just read it because this is the primary scripture that we're talking and going through today. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. It's interesting. This is actually about how long it took for the priests to do the incense before the altar in, in the Old Testament. It took roughly an hour, maybe half an hour. There was this silence before the throne. This is a huge moment. Half an hour of silence is a long time. People normally do a minute. Half an hour of silence. Then I saw seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with. So the incense is there, and it's with the prayers of the saints on the golden altar before the throne. So the incense and the prayers, and they're offered together before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. So this fire is thrown on the earth and there were peals of thunder. We talked about this, how from the throne comes thunder and flashes of lightning and rumblings and an earthquake. There's power in this throwing fire mingled with the prayers of the saints, mingled with incense onto the earth. This is a huge moment where we go from the seals into these judgments. These judgments on the earth, these trumpets and these bowls are coming down onto the earth and they're opened. This is, I want you to see this, they're opened by the Lamb. This isn't something we need to be afraid of. It may be problematic for us if you're kind of in the way of it, but we don't need to be afraid of it because it's God who's doing it. And God is a good God. When you go into Revelation, you need to understand the goodness of God, otherwise it's very frightening. Okay, so I'm going to back up. To go through this passage in the way that I want to, I'm going to back up a little bit. Jesus' purpose, one of, he has lots of things going on. Jesus is a complicated guy. But today I'm talking about one of Jesus' purposes was to destroy the works of the enemy. 1 John 3.8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So the devil, like, Jesus came to wipe out the devil. And we see this fulfilled when he's actually casting out demons. He was doing things people normally couldn't do. He had power, and he was breaking the power of Satan. And it was really impressive when he was on the earth. But one of the arguments against Jesus that I hear when I talk to people is, well, why did he do it in such a small way? I mean, he did it in a really big way. But if you think about the, the magnitude of Jesus and who we say he is, and then the size of the earth, it was a drop in the bucket. It was tiny, super powerful, something that showed his authority and made a difference on the earth. But it was just for a few people in one country. You know, it was just like a little down payment. But he was showing 
his mission. He's, it was more, I mean, it's definitely about the people it happened to. I don't want to minimize that. But I think that on the grander scale, it was more about Jesus. It was actually about his identity. It was about, wow, we know who you are because of what you can do. We know who you are now. That was the main reason that he was doing this. So if we go to the parenting side, this is the family business. Our dad... You might think you're in a family business. You might think you know what your dad's doing. But let me tell you what your dad's really doing. He's destroying the works of the enemy on the earth. That is your family business. You might think you're in carpeting. Nope. You're in carpeting in order to destroy the works of the enemy on the earth. I work at Tim Hortons. You're in Tim Hortons in order to destroy the works of the enemy in Tim Hortons. That is the family business. That's what your dad does. You're a child, not of a Tim Hortons manager. You're a child of somebody who destroys Satan on the earth. So know who you are and who your dad is. He models it as a good dad. So this is parenting, right? Parenting 101. How do you disciple? You model it. You show who you are and you do it yourself. Don't be too good. You show them how it's done. If you want to be a leader, you serve. You do the thing you're asking your followers to do. So he models it. He goes before us. How do you not raise entitled children? You model it yourself. Step one. Next thing. You tell your children to do it. Children need instruction. Luke 10, 19. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. You are in the family business. This is not just Jesus' destiny. This is your destiny. This is your business. And you are supposed to, it's like a pyramid scheme. Like you're supposed to bring people into it. Like you're supposed to enlist people into the family business. That is your, I don't really understand pyramid schemes. That might have been offensive. I don't know. So there, you're in this place where you are supposed to pass it on to other people. The, ther- the, the authority has been given to the disciples. Now I meet, going back to parenting, I meet parents who ask their children to do things that their children can't do. If you want a recipe for disaster in a family... Ask your children to do something that they can't do. And then blame it on their character. Because that's typically what happens. This is what you're supposed to do, Johnny. Johnny can't do it. Johnny, you're being lazy. That's the constellation for a disaster. I do assessments on children, or I did before COVID hit. I still kind of do. It's tough in a waiting room with lots of children, so we've had to limit some things. And when I do assessments on children, I'm primarily assessing their abilities, what they can do and what they can't do. And it's, a, it's difficult. You're telling parents, you're telling children, I'm telling children, you can't do this. Like, that's not the American dream. It's like, you're not going to be an astronaut. It's hard. It's painful. Parents are sitting there crying as they hear the results of this assessment. What can your child do? And implicitly, what can your child not do? And they're crying as their dreams for their children 
are struck down by this apparently uncaring psychologist, destroying their future and the future of their children. One psychologist wrote a book called Love's Executioner. And he felt, on this, I'm like Love's Executioner. I'm like the executioner of dreams. It's terrible. And then there's this moment when the clouds part as they realize who their child is. Because tell, let me tell you, I'm not changing their child. And I tell this to people, you're the same person walking in here as you are walking out. I didn't do this to you. It's like, please don't kill the messenger. You're the same person coming in as leaving. But as the clouds part, they begin to have realistic expectations for their child. And they're saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. Cyrus, are you telling me that I don't have a bad child? And I'm like, yes, you don't have a bad child. You're, and I look at the results, and I'm often telling them, from everything I can see, your child is doing the best that they can. And then they really cry. Because they realize what they were telling their child is so untrue. When they were saying to their child, you're not doing the best that you can. You need to do better. And I'm here sitting here telling you, your child has this ability, and they have this achievement. They're doing better in school than they should be able to do. They are working so hard to please you. And they haven't been able to. And you've been blaming them. I don't say it that harshly. But they get the message. And then they say, what should I do? And I say, we might have, I might have done enough right here. If you go home and don't tell your child that they're lazy or imply it or act like it, it will change their world. I deal with... I, I sometimes assess children who are developmentally delayed, who are so low like, on their abilities that they need government assistance for the rest of their lives. And there's, you, know, you have two, I don't know, lawyers or two professionals sitting in front of you, and they don't know that this is true about their child, and they think that everybody's been lying to them. And I tell them, your child is in this place. And they cry, and then they realize. And I tell them, the one, like children who are, it's amazing, children who are that low, people who are developmentally delayed, they're like the happiest people in the world. If you just only ask them to do what they can do, it's like almost instantaneous that their world turns around and their mood disorder goes away. They're no longer anxious. And they're happy. As long as you only ask them to do what they can do. Let me tell you something. You may think you can do something, but the Lord is only asking you to do what you can do, what he has given you. Now, I don't want to crush your dreams, and I don't want to crush the dreams that the Lord has for you. That's not my mission. But I want to tell you clearly, the Lord is only asking you to do what he has given you the ability to do. He is a good father. He's not going to call you lazy. You will get all of your reward in heaven. More than many if you just do what the Lord has given you to do. And that's it. And nobody else can tell you what that is. They can maybe help you discern, but they can't tell you. That's between you and God. He is the one who's going to look at you in the eye, and he's going to say, you did exactly what I said. Nobody else understood, but you did it. 
And that other guy who did what seemed to be like so much, he was only doing a quarter of what he was supposed to do. He's going to get less than you because you did everything. And he did less. You get into heaven as a free gift, but there are rewards in heaven. Loving the Lord comes with rewards. Rewards that are relational, like the Father looking at you and saying, well done, good and faithful servant. If you do everything that God told you to do, not what the other guy did, he will look at you and he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. And he won't say it to the other guy, not that you're trying to compete, you're actually trying to help them do it, but you will have that relational reality between you and God forever. You are going to say, because nobody's going to get to go on earth again and do this over. So for eternity, you're the person who was on earth and could look at the Lord and say, when I was on earth and I couldn't see you and you were telling me to do things and the world was telling me not to, I did what you said and the Lord will look at you and say, I know. For eternity, you're going to have that with me. The angels want to bleed. They look at us and they say, you can bleed on the earth where you can't see him. I wish I could go and do that. Do you know how glorious he is? I want to bleed for him. We're going to go and say, we're going to have the blood and we're going to say, I bled for you. And he's going to look, I know you bled for me. For eternity, I know that you bled for me. Those are the rewards. Gold is on the streets. It's not important. It's relationship. That's the reward. It's going to be doing things for him and him knowing you. And you say, I did this for you. And it's not like I did better. It's not about that. It's not about the other people. It's just like looking at his eyes and him saying, I know. You think there's tears in heaven. That's the tears. When you look at him and you say, you could have done a little more. And then he's going to wipe away the tears. But there's going to be tears. He'll comfort you because we're all going to get that. We all could have done a little more. And he's going to wipe away those tears. But let me tell you it's worth it. To do everything that, he could, that he's telling you to do. Okay. So he's a good dad. He tells you to do things. And he only tells you what you can do. So he gave us the authority to destroy the works of the enemy. We're in the family business. And we, so if you're looking at what Jesus did, don't worry about it. Just do what you can do to destroy the works of the enemy. You don't have to look at what he did and do, do what he did. Some will do more. Don't get me wrong. I believe that amazing things will happen, but that is not your measure. I'm praying for revival that God will give us more, but that is not your measure. When you go before him, it's what he told you to do. That's it. Now, the next thing I want to say is that the end times revelation, we had revelation in the Old Testament. And ever since the fall, the revelation of Jesus has been getting stronger. So the end times we had a revelation, a glorious revelation. And some people were given more in different pockets. And David saw things in Psalms that people didn't see for years afterwards. There's revelation that people were receiving. And then Jesus came. We had a revelation of actually him coming and talking to us. It was just incredible to see this extra amazing download of revelation. And let me tell you, Jesus coming as a man on the earth in this weak frame is nothing. It is. Bad language, but forgive the exaggeration. It's nothing compared to seeing him come in his glory. So people are like, why do you study the revelation? Why do you study when he came in the first place? That's all over. And they're like, well, it hasn't happened yet. Why do you study when, it, when it's all over? Why do you study the past? To get to know him. Why do you study the future? To get to know him. It's not just about finding out when he's coming. It's to know who he is. And one of the greatest revelations of him is when he comes in his fullness. 
So he's a man who came to destroy the works of the enemy. And we see that when he's like taking demons out of people's ears. But let me tell you, him taking a demon out of somebody's ear is nothing compared to how he's going to wipe Satan completely off the earth. We get impressed with a miracle for one person. A drop in the bucket compared to him doing a miracle over the entire face of the earth. Revelation 8.5 Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it on the earth. We talked about this red glowing passion in Jesus' and God's heart on the throne. He has this kind of ruby appearance, this passion. And his, this fire, the, in, the, in the Bible, this fire represents God's passion, his desire for us, his purification. Jesus purifies with fire. And his power and his presence before the throne, there's this flame going out. This river of fire is coming out from the throne. He's so pure. Think about the burning bush. There's this burning bush. It's like God's fire coming down on the earth. What happens? Take off your sandals. You're standing on holy ground. When God's fire comes, you've got to take off your shoes. It's a, it's a different reality. Jesus is always with us. But when he comes as a fire, it's different. I want God to come as a fire. Is he here? Yes. Can he come as a fire? Yes. I want him to come as a fire. I want everybody to take off their shoes before they come in here. Not because I'm great, but because the Holy One has come and entered the room. And you can't walk, otherwise you're going to burn your feet because it wasn't made for shoes. It's made for his presence. His fire is going to come. The Lord, when he throws his fire on the earth, it's not going to be just around a little bush that you have to take off your shoes. You have to take off your shoes around the whole earth. He is going to make the whole earth, earth a burning bush. His purity is going to come. And he's going to make the whole earth holy ground for the Father to come and step onto. When the Father comes and steps on the earth, the whole earth will be made holy. It's going to purify the earth. Isaiah 6, 6-7. Then one of the seraphim, uh, seraphim flew to me, having his hand having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from the, uh, with tongs from the altar. He couldn't even hold it. He had tongs. And he touched, this is an angel, a seraphim. He has tongs for it. He's going to touch a person with it. Just think about that. An angel takes it with tongs to touch a person. There's like, that's a whole sermon. Tongs for an angel, but a person can touch it. Who are we? takes it with tongs and he touches him he touched his mouth and said behold this has touched your lips your guilt is taken away your sin is atoned for you are purified with the fire from the altar the fire from the altar is going to get thrown on the earth all of us are going to get touched and not just on our lips we're going to get covered with fire this is a few levels beyond healing somebody's eyes Get to know Jesus in his fullness. The Lamb opens it. It's Revelation 8.1. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, Jesus is the one releasing this on the earth. All of these things that we're so afraid of, like, you know, the sky going dark and weird creatures. It's all Jesus. It's Jesus destroying the works of the Antichrist. It's Moses opening up things in order to take down Pharaoh. That's the reality of what we're going to be. We're going to be like... The Hebrews in Goshen, we're going to be watching as the Egyptians are destroyed. All these things that are so scary are actually not meant for us at all. 
It's the fulfillment of Jesus' mandate, fulfillment of Jesus' mandate to destroy the works of Satan. Okay, so Jesus is a successful dad. There are dads out there who are struggling. We're all struggling. This is a successful dad, rich dad. Very successful. It's not easy to parent when you're struggling as a father in life. It's also not easy to parent when you're super, super successful as a parent. I meet, by the world's definition of success, I see people who come in super successful. Magazines about them. Successful. And they have children who are entitled. Children who are a thorn in their life. It's sad to see people be successful in so many ways and not be able to parent. And yet they still defend their children. Their family, the rest of their family is screaming and they defend their child. They will reward their child, continue to give to their child, hoping, hoping, hoping that if they just give their child one more thing, they will love them and not be entitled. You might say Jesus gives us something for nothing. Let me tell you, saying that I can't save myself, but you can save me, is not nothing. It's a stone that most of the world is going to trip over. Saying, I can't save myself, but I need a Jewish man from 2,000 years ago to save me, is not nothing. It's the ultimate test of humility. Jesus saves the humble. You need to be able to say, I can't do it. If you can't say that, you can't get into heaven. You need to say, Jesus, I need you and I'm going to follow you. It's a huge test of humility. Jesus promotes the humble. You have to be humble to get in. And if you want to get more relationship with him, more authority within the kingdom, proper authority, authority that he's actually given you, you need to do it through service. You have to be humble in order, to, in order to get God's promotion. You can get man's promotion, but if you want God's promotion, you need to do it through humility. Our, just as Jesus' fulfillment of his mission, the ultimate carpet sale in the future, The ultimate wiping out of the devil is in Revelation. So is ours. We will take out demons from ears too. We can do that on the earth, but that's nothing compared to what we're going to do in Revelation. What we're going to do in the second coming. We don't talk about it, but it is so much greater. Just as Jesus' fulfillment and power is revealed so much more powerfully, so will our uh, place in his plan be revealed so much more powerfully. Revelation 8.3 Another angel came at the altar with the golden censer and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of the saints on the golden altar before the throne and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hands of the angel and the angel took the censer and filled it and threw it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. This angel came and added some ingredients. There was a spiritual recipe before God on the altar 
Now, what was added? What's incense being added to our prayers? Incense is a symbol for prayer. So prayers are added to prayers. Our prayers are added to incense. Who is praying? Our prayers. But who else is praying that's being added to ours? What is this incense that's prayers? Who else could be praying? Romans 8, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Hebrews 7, consequently, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he, is al- since he Jesus, always lives to make intercession for them. Romans 8, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. We pray, and Jesus is praying for our prayers. We can't do it on our own. Let's take this to parenting again. There's a difference between being a parent who's, who's wealthy and overwhelmingly generous and being a parent who is overindulgent. Overindulgent is a parent who gives their child something for nothing. Leads to spoiling. Jesus is an extremely wealthy and powerful father. And if we give something, if we give that weak, sincere, humble, ignorant, completely off-base prayer with that sincere heart, saying, God, I think you said this, and he's like, I wasn't even close. But thank you. And he takes this little seed of a prayer, this little movement in a human heart, and he multiplies it. And he says, you meant it. I know you meant it. I saw you. And I'm going to multiply it. I'm going to take your humility, and I am going to make you powerful. So we offer this... Completely like, oh God, I think I hear. Lord, you are amazing. And he's like, you got part of that right. And he's like, and then, and then he says, I'm going to take what you gave to me. You came over. You talked with me. It was a pretty good conversation. And I am going to multiply this because you have a sincere heart. And I am going to wipe out evil on the earth. And you thought that healing the ear was a big deal, but you are going to be with me in wiping out Satan on the earth. I am going to lift up your weakness, and I am going to add my own prayers that make sense, and I'm going to put them with yours, and we are going to do this together. You're going to be with me where I am. Father, that they might be with me where I am, and he's going to do it. He's a wealthy dad, not an overindulgent. If you don't pray, you don't get to go to the party. He's not overindulgent. God is very real. Don't mess with him. You can't get something for nothing. You can't get up there and say, well, you know, I had some friends who told me it, you know, it wasn't great to pray to you or something. And, and I don't know, like, I, or I was part of this other church that said that that didn't matter and I didn't pray. And he's like, hmm. You have to face me alone, and you know, and I know, that you knew what I told you to do, and you didn't do it. I'm not giving you something for nothing. But if you enter in in your weakness, and you give a sincere heart, and 
do a little bit, I will multiply you beyond your wildest dreams. There is so little required and so much that he will give. Can't fake the prayer. You can't be entitled. He will not have another entitled being in him, with him. You need to move into humility. You need to make that movement. You don't have to be perfectly humble. But you need to move in that direction. And you will be multiplied like you wouldn't believe. Beyond imagination. Beyond what the human mind can conceive. And this is what parents do. As a parent, you can't reward nothing. If it's nothing, it's the prodigal son. They go, and you let them go. It's nothing. You wait. You wait at the door, and you're like, come home. But it's not an enabling father. They don't go out there and get him a job. They wait at home. Think about that. There's this love, but there's no enabling. You go find out what you can do on your own. I'll be here when you get home. And then he comes home, and he makes this one step in the father's direction. This powerful, resounding, through the universe step of a human being stepping towards the Father. And the Father runs. Arms wide. The sound of that step of a prodigal son. And the Father, the Lord of the universe on the throne in heaven, with beings, billions of beings all around him, worshipping, throws himself at the person. The human who has taken a step home. How powerful is that? That a human being taking that little bit. It's like, I'm not enabling you anymore. You are actually coming home. That was sincere. And he could tell the difference. He says, that was sincere. And then there's this multiplication. Awesome. Amen. Amen. Oh. It's so amazing to see this picture of the father raising up his people, his bride. He does it through modeling. He shows us how. He gives us the ability and only asks us to do what we can do. And then, if we take that step in his direction, he takes his divine hand and he multiplies us. He raises up the humble. Maybe if the band could come up. My prayer is that Maplecrest would take that step that would resound through heaven. There is a church that wants to serve me. There is a church that actually wants to do it my way. Father, help us to be a church that does it your way. Help us to each to take our weak hearts and put it in front of your bonfire and let you multiply us. Multiply the love, multiply the humility, multiply the, the fruit of your spirit in our lives here and then multiply it beyond our, what we can imagine. Beyond what we can imagine. Let's stand together.
this song that we're going to sing, we sang it just before I came up, and I want to sing it again. Worthy, worthy, worthy. Worthy, 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 worthy. Why do we pray? Why do we pray? He already knows everything that we're going to pray. We pray because he is worthy. We pray because it changes our hearts. And he's like, put yourself before me. Step into humility. And I will come and I will touch you. I will come and I will touch you. Lord, you are worthy of it all. Come and touch our hearts.